Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Lucky Few Podcast, where we are shifting the narrative by shouting the worth of people with Down syndrome. This is Heather, Mercedes, and Micah. And today we are continuing our conversation on health, and we're bringing back a former guest who's been a fan favorite, well, at least my favorite, who we just cannot get enough of. Dr. Spinazzi is here. Thank you, friends, for joining us, and welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. This week's episode is sponsored by the one and only Jonas Paul Eyewear. Jonas Paul Eyewear was founded by Ben and Laura Harrison when their son, Jonas, was born nearly blind at birth. This was extremely unexpected news that no parent prepares for, but it gave them a window into the world of blindness, and it helped them start their company, Jonas Paul Eyewear, which is on a mission to help kids feel beautiful and confident in their glasses. Head to JonasPaulEyewear.com to learn more. Okay, so we want to jump right into this conversation because there's just too much good stuff to cover. And I know a lot of listeners, well, I don't know this for sure. Let me back up a tiny bit. We did a poll a few months ago at the beginning of COVID and quite a few people said they, they're done talking about COVID. And mm-hmm. I, to that, I want to say, aren't we all too bad, right? <laughs> like this is the world in which we live and not to dismiss them. But we know that schools are coming School is starting so soon. By the time this episode airs, we are weeks away from most schools in the, in the nation, at least most in California, starting. And by the time this episode airs, I'm sure all decisions will have been made in probably the, all the districts. Mm-hmm. A lot of districts are making decisions. So we want to talk. We're going to bring an expert in, like a legit expert, not just the three of us saying what we think <laughs> and believe. And to talk, to bring COVID up again, because we know that it's a conversation that leans a little bit differently for people who have Down syndrome. And there's so much information, which is a blessing and a curse, right? Like the information helps us and also hinders us from knowing the full truth. And so we need trusted voices. That's Dr. Spinazzi. However, before we go there, dear listeners, we want to remind you that we have a Patreon account. Who knows yes. what Patreon is? Raise your hand. I do. I know okay. what it is. My, uh, Anne Mercedes raised her hand. Okay. I raised my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely know. I'll tell you guys that Patreon is a way to support our show, where to financially support us. And you can support us in, in a small, consistent way, support us in bigger ways if this show means a, a bigger amount to you <laughs> or if it's possible for you, but there's different tiers. And so, you know, you could do something like $5 a month just to help us keep going. You know, we, it takes financial resources for us to be able to record and edit and put this show out every week. And if it means a lot to you, we would love for you to support us in that way. And there's also some good stuff that comes from, from doing Patreon. Right, ladies? Right. Yes, we have right now the first 30 people who sign up. We, depending on what tier, you'll either get a narrative shifter sweatshirt, a narrative shifter keychain. You guys, here's what you're going to have to do. (laughs) Head to the luckyfewpodcast.com to the Patreon page, and you will find out what the three different tiers are. But more than the swag, it is 
in order to, we know that this podcast does not exist without you, the listeners. Mm -hmm. And we are so, so, so unbelievably grateful for you. This community is incredibly important to all three of us and we love to see it grow. And it's important. Part of that growth is also financial. So we just want to invite Mm -hmm. you into that as listeners, as people who we know support the podcast by listening. We also want to invite you to support the podcast financially and Patreon is the way to do that. The luckyfewpodcast.com, Patreon link. You can pause this episode, do that. Come on back. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just add one more thing that um, we, for our Patreon people, they get to watch the episode. We Mm -hmm. record little video, extra video, video footage and extra discussions that go onto our Facebook page, Patreons. So there's some extra fun stuff that comes with it too. Yep. That's it. Cool, cool, cool. Well, are you guys ready? Are you ready to dig deeper into COVID than you've ever dug before? (laughs) Wait. (laughs) Let's get pumped. All right, my friends. It's time to get some real answers from our guest, Dr. Noemi Spinazzi. We are so lucky that Dr. Spinazzi is back with us again today. We recorded with her in March when this pandemic started, and she is graciously giving us some time of hers once more. Just a reminder, she's a primary care physician at the UCSF University of California, San Francisco Children's Hospital in Oakland. She is also the medical director of Charlie's Clinic, a Down Syndrome specific clinic that my very own ACE is part of. And as well as the co-director of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics Resident Rotations and an assistant professor at UCSF School of Medicine. So she kind of is, you know, not doing very much. (laughs) I'm just kidding. She is a busy lady. And she's among the many healthcare professionals that have been working hard these past few months. And we're so thankful for her work and for the, her essential work during this time of the pandemic. So welcome to the show, Dr. Spinazzi. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Okay, we have just some like bigger questions that yeah. you can break down into more specifics as you see necessary. And my one of my biggest questions in things that I've seen shift from March to now is there is data that is showing that kids are not being affected by coronavirus. There's more data. So how do we apply that to kids with Down syndrome this much further along? That is a fantastic question. And I think that, first of all, that is the biggest difference between when we talked in March and now is that we know a little bit more. Um, And uh, this is still a very new virus. So knowing a little bit more doesn't mean knowing everything. And that is a very important disclaimer um, that I might remind you of a few times today and might make you frustrated because when people come to doctors, they're hoping for certainty. And right now I don't have that. I just have data up until now. I uh, want to reframe what you said because I agree that the data is showing that children are less affected by COVID than adults, but it, but they're not, not affected at all. And uh, we have some specific information that is very important to understand as we then start thinking about the risks and benefits of going back to in-person learning among many other things. One thing that we have learned is that 
kids get less sick from this virus, for sure. In California, we've had uh, fewer percent of the cases being in younger children, um, the up to teenage years. And uh, of those children, they have gotten less sick, they have been less likely to need to be in the hospital, and we have had zero death, deaths in California um, in younger children from COVID-19. Um, so that is really important data, right? It made me, as a doctor who tends to love her patients <laughs> a, a little more than what a, the, the prescription for a doctor, that has been <sighs> a big sigh of relief, right? Um, my, my patients are a bit more spared themselves directly. The second thing that we have learned is that kids are also not as good at spreading it, which is very different from any other virus, right? We think mm -hmm. of kids as vectors of grossness through yeah. their snotty, nose-picking, everything-touching kind of behavior. Yes. So it's been surprising to find out that children under 10 years old are less effective at spreading the virus. There have been several studies that have shown this, both looking at contact tracing of known infected children and seeing who they infected. There was one study in France specifically of this kid that went skiing and was infected and then went to like multiple different places. And he was actually co-infected with COVID and the flu and passed COVID to nobody, but passed the flu to several <laughs> other people. Um, so again, just pointing out the, the difference in how they spread, uh, looking retrospectively at cases and that involved children and looking at who the index case, the first person infected was, and rarely that person was the child. The most often it was an adult in the family or an older teenager in the family. Looking at outbreaks in various countries that have ne either never closed or gone back to more in-person learning, the outbreaks tend to happen, when it happened in school, they tend to happen in middle schools and high schools, as opposed to the elementary schools and, and preschools, and um, which is all important information as we take it all in and, and begin to think about how to plan. And uh, the other piece to finish answering your question, Heather, regarding children with Down syndrome, we simply have not seen an increased signal in children with Down syndrome. Now, I'm not relaxed yet because while I'm reassured that we didn't see an increased signal, even in countries that got hit early, like Italy or China, or in places around the country that got hit early, like New York and Queens in particular, the behavior of families of children with Down syndrome has probably been different. We have probably been more careful as a community mm -hmm. than the rest of the community. So uh, I am reassured that early data is not showing an increased uh, signal in children with Down syndrome as it pertains to COVID. I still think that there's a lot of learning that needs to happen to be able to say that with more certainty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you talk a little bit about how how this experience has been for you and what you've seen like as a healthcare provider what what was it like in march and what are things like for you right now mm -hmm. yeah so first of all that is thank you for asking that question because rarely do people ask about how i'm doing and how we are doing as a healthcare system there are some things that are better we have some processes down 
when when I was talking to you in March, telehealth was brand new to me, and mm -hmm. uh, I was we were still figuring out a process. We were still figuring out a process for teaching families that are not as technologically savvy how to connect, recognizing that some families simply don't have internet access at home, simply don't have the kind of devices that can allow you to connect by video and figuring out how to make up for that gap um, through telephone, through cautious use of in-person visits. We understand what needs to be seen in person and we have a process for doing that now. When I go into our clinical spaces, I feel so much safer now at knowing that everybody's masked, nobody's, everybody's symptom screened. We're constantly encouraged to stay home at the slightest sniffle, which tells me that the people around me are also safer. Mm -hmm. um, because we're seeing so many kids by telehealth, there's fewer kids in person there. So when you are coming in person, you can feel good about being there. So yeah. there's, there's the, the, the experience overall feels uh, smoother and safer and then the better understanding of the data is also helpful. We are seeing more cases around the country and, and in California um, definitely in the past several weeks and we're starting to see the impact of not only COVID but also um, the, in, the economic impact of shelter in place and the mental health impact of shelter in place, mm -hmm. which is affecting so many families so significantly, mm -hmm. so severely. Uh, and that has been, it's been stressful. It's been um, draining um, mm -hmm. because, because my, I'm a fixer, right? I want to, I want to fix you, but I don't have a pill to um, mm -hmm. secure you income, secure you food, secure you housing, um, secure you wellness. Um, so it's, um, it's definitely um, been a, an interesting experience. Um, one thing that I want to say, you asked me, what has this been like? I think that we're all wary of sheltering in place. We're all wary. We miss, we miss our extended family. We miss our friends. We miss our activities. And so it makes absolute sense to have this feeling of, I've got to get back to some semblance of normal life. And I just have this other perspective of getting that phone call from a family of, I've been exposed and I am worried, or someone in my family just tested positive. And the experience of the fear of the uncertainty, the pain and discomfort that this disease can cause to some people who um, tell me that they're in so much pain that they can't sleep, that they are uh, praying for relief, that they are worried about not making it through and, and who's mm. going to take care of my kid. Uh, the financial impact of you cannot leave the house for at least 14 days and who's going to pay the rent? Who's going to bring me food? So I think that while it's understandable that we're itching to go back to a normal semblance of life, each of us has to recognize the role that we play in our community in keeping our community safe. And, and we need to dig deep and continue to observe uh, physical distancing and um, measures and, and social distancing principles to be able to emerge from this. Because if you are a family that unfortunately has to live through this, it is, it, it is intense. It is intense. And so I, I don't wish it on anybody. And to be able to not wish it on anybody, I have to encourage everybody to continue to be really careful. Mm. A whole lot of the cases that we are seeing are not from um, 
you know, I went out and I partied, although that is also absolutely happening. It's from, we gathered with uh, uh, our extended family for Memorial Day for 4th of July for someone's birthday. And all it took was one person being infected. But when you're sharing food and you're with family and your guard is down and you love them and all it takes is, you know, a small period of time without observing physical and social distancing and, and the, the disease gets spread. Um, mm. It's sobering. It's really sobering yes. to think about it that way. I mean, just see, we know that, but to hear it, I guess, I guess you hope this much, like these many months later, that it's a different, uh, or a different process, but it's just not yet. That's what I'm hearing you saying. It's the same, like the social distancing is still the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. To stay yes. safe. Yeah. Yes. Because if I know that in the past week, the only place I've gone to is work. And I have only seen my husband or I've only seen, you know, that one person in my, in my safe bubble that is observing similar physical and social distancing requirements, then first of all, my likelihood of being exposed is way lower than if I hung out with five families, 10 families, 15 families. If God forbid I am testing positive, I also have to go tell other people, hey, I've exposed you. And that is in itself um, a a morally taxing thing, even though, you know, you only have so much control over what happens. And um, it's just a must. And it was a must before we started seeing the second spike in the United States. And right now, more than ever, it's it's absolutely what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. I think that in all of these discussions around are we ready to go back to school? And I know that that's where we're going. We have to recognize our own role, especially as the adults who are better at spreading the disease, mm-hmm. at containing this pandemic, um, so that when the trigger is pulled on going back to school, we made the community transmission so low um, that if it is overall safer and we have taken steps to make the whole process as safe as possible with what we have under our own control. Yeah. Go to that conversation about going back to school because, um, you know, I, there we've in California, we've all been hearing that LA is going to be distance learning. Oakland has announced that San Francisco just announced yesterday and and also throughout quarantine, I've seen so many articles about how children with special needs especially need to be in a school setting and they should be the priority of going back to school. And so we really want to hear from you and what you have been learning about school. What does it look like for going back to school to be done safely? What should we expect? What do you think that we should ask on behalf, like as we advocate for our children? It's so hard to know what to advocate for because I know that I, for instance, I know Ace needs socialization. He needs friends and I am not the best teacher for him, but he also needs to be healthy and it's hard to know what to prioritize. Hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) And so let me start by saying when we talk about school, we are not talking about 
a right or wrong decision. We're not talking about a risk-free decision and a risky decision. We are carefully weighing the risks of COVID with the risks of not being in school. And that is why about a month and a half ago, was it? I don't know, time flies. The American Academy of Pediatrics came out and said, as districts plan, they should aim for return to in-person learning, mm -hmm. not because there is, and then had to come clarify, as long as the risk and the community transmission permits, as it suddenly became a political issue, as this yeah. whole disease has become yeah. political, when, yeah. you, know, you know who doesn't vote? Coronavirus. You know who doesn't care about politics? Coronavirus. Does not listen to the news, does not look at Facebook, does not look at Twitter, just spreads around and infects. Anyway, so we are not making a risk-free decision here regardless. So like everything in life, we weigh the risks and we weigh uh, and we think about how to minimize the risks. So Mike, I agree with you. I think that especially our children with specialized learning needs are uh, in dire need of returning to in-person learning. Um, I have heard of many variations on distance learning hasn't worked for us. Uh, my kid didn't attend to the screen. I'm not getting as much from the distance learning as I ever did with in-person learning. I am not connecting consistently with my um, therapies and services that are outlined in my IEP. I'm not getting my evaluations and I just turned three and I'm supposed to be a student within the school district, but all evaluations are on hold or my evaluation happened over screen. Is that really a valid evaluation? I, I, I hear it all. I hear it all. And that is why some districts, including I'm familiar with, most familiar with Oakland, are making children with specialized learning needs a priority for in-person return to school. Now, when in-person return to learning can only happen when community transmission is at a reasonable level. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is the opposite. We've seen an explosion. It has felt like when you have a group project and some of us are really working hard on the group project and others are just not. And, uh, and uh, especially in our community where we've been so careful and, and so eagerly wanna go back to in-person learning, it, is, it feels really frustrating to see videos of people gathering in bars and on variety of different settings and just not observing uh, distancing. So how do we think about a safe um, school environment? Uh, there are some principles that we need to think about. The first one being physical distancing wherever appropriate and possible. The use of protective equipment, hand washing and disinfection, smaller groupings, mm -hmm. symptom screening, maximizing adequate ventilation, and cautions around times of transition, like changes from classes, transportation to and from school. And I would like to kind of talk about each of them if I have the time to do yeah. so. Please. So when it comes to physical distancing, the six foot rule is a doubling of the average spit radius of about three <laughs> feet. Because um, we take 
the data and then we make it double safe by doubling the distance. So physical distancing would ideally be six feet apart, but acceptably, uh, acceptably three feet apart. And probably most achievable and most doable and most important in classrooms for children over 10, because I told you earlier that children under 10 are less good at spreading the disease. And physical distancing includes physical distancing between adults, because adults are the ones who are much better at spreading the disease, right? Mm -hmm. So we can't say, oh, in my classroom, everybody's three to six feet apart, but then we all have lunch together in our staff break room, because that's not going to be the same observation of physical distancing. Mm -hmm. So physical distancing applies to beyond the classroom as we maybe have to go from one place of school to the other. Maybe we have lines marked with tape with a one-way line going one way and a one-way line going the other way so that you can maintain that physical distancing even during transitions. As we think about transportation for children who rely on the school bus, how do you arrange seating so that it's assigned seating and so that it's um, adequately distanced? Thanks. I was going to ask for you to, and maybe you were already going to, address the mask thing because parents are, I feel like that's what I hear the most. I'm not sending my school, my kid to school if they're wearing a mask the whole day. That's what I hear a lot. If they're wearing a mask the whole day. Yeah. Okay. They have to wear a mask the whole day. Gotcha. So let's absolutely talk about that because I feel like that's another um, issue that has gotten a little politicized and polarized. And Mm -hmm. uh, um, my one thing that I can promise to people, and I say this to my patients and my families all the time, is I promise to be straight and honest with you and give you as factual information as I can so you can make your decisions. And that is my promise to you and to the listeners. So when it comes to masks, first of all, the pores of a mask, I'm showing a cloth mask right now, a pretty thick cloth mask made of denim. Mm-hmm. The pores in the mask are still bigger than the size of the coronavirus virus, mm-hmm. and they are gigantic compared to the size of an oxygen molecule or a carbon dioxide molecule. So a mask will not impair gas exchange. It mm-hmm. will not impact breathing. Also, unless it's an N95 fit-tested mask, the mask will have little spaces on the sides that will allow for more airflow. So really, there is no possibility of not being able to have adequate gas exchange wearing Mm -hmm. a mask. And I know that that has been a concern for a Mm -hmm. lot of people, especially people who have chronic lung issues, people whose children have chronic lung issues. When we think to before COVID, before masks became uh, an opinion, people with chronic lung disease were the ones who were wearing a mask. There's an Olympic athlete that broke records wearing a mask because he has severe asthma and allergies. Mm. And when he races, he wears a mask. So first piece of factual reassurance, wearing a mask will not impact gas exchange. It should not impact breathing in a significant way. Mm -hmm. So when we think about protective equipment, students ideally, will be wearing a mask the whole day. We're going to prioritize children over 10 wearing Mm -hmm. the mask because children over 10 
are better at spreading the disease. Mm -hmm. Also, they're more likely to tolerate the mask as opposed to doing the number where they pull down the mask constantly. And then there's a lot more hand to mouth, nose, eyes behavior, which is another way that the virus can transmit. However, if your kid under 10 is totally cool with the mask, it might offer an additional layer of protection. Hmm. That said, let's remember, the mask protects others from us. Mm -hmm. It does not protect us from others. The size of the pores of a mask are bigger than the size of the COVID virus. So if someone is spitting on us and we're wearing a mask, it is a barrier, but is not as good a barrier. Hmm. However, because the whole time we're talking, we're spittling in the air, the mask is catching the majority of that spittle. So it's protecting others from what normally happens with talking. It decreases aerosolization, it decreases all kinds of emission of droplets that could contain the virus. Mm -hmm. So the ideal situation is a situation where everybody's wearing a mask so that they're, they're keeping the secretions to themselves and they're not spreading them to others. We I totally recognize that this is exceedingly difficult for children who are younger and children who have special needs. Mm -hmm. So we can do some things to try and desensitize the same techniques that we use to desensitize against glasses, CPAP masks, other things where we do it for a brief period of time with lots of praise. You're the boss of the mask. You put it off and you take it off. You put it on and you take it off. I'm a fan of silly things like Snapchat filters so that you can see yourself wearing a mask and desensitize yourself to the visual of seeing a mask um, or taking picture of you with a mask and then making a social story about it, taking a short video of you with the mask and lots of praise around it to again desensitize to that idea and with those techniques I have supported some of my patients in tolerating the mask for some periods of time. I, if someone as a student wishes to wear a face shield that mm -hmm. might be additional protection. For teachers it's going to be extra important to wear that mask to catch their own secretions as well as keep some of other children's secretions away from them and then wear a face shield too. And then if a teacher is working with someone who has specialized needs and maybe is nonverbal, cannot tell us about their symptoms, maybe they just simply cannot tolerate a mask, then the teacher should definitely have a good face shield, a mask, uh, probably a gown and some gloves to really protect themselves. Hmm. Can you touch real quick on, is a face shield, can a face shield be a replacement for a mask? Not a replacement. But again, we're talking about risk reduction, not perfection. So mm -hmm. if your kid will wear a face shield and simply will not wear a mask, face shield is better than nothing. Than nothing, okay. I wanna talk about hand washing because mm -hmm. hand washing is an effective way of decreasing the spread. And that is something that any child, any age can do. And I wanna recognize that a lot of schools are so underfunded that they don't even have soap mm -hmm. in their schools because wow. it's not in their budget. And so just like the community rose up when us as the medical providers were saying, we don't have masks and mm -hmm. somehow found masks, I would encourage anybody in the community to say, hey, school, do you have soap? Do you have yeah. disposable mm -hmm. towels? Can we support the school with simple things like that? Hand washing will absolutely decrease the spread of the disease because it will decrease the spread from our own secretions to surfaces and then from 
touching something to then touching our hand, nose, and mouth. So high touch surfaces like doorknobs and things like that should also be um, disinfected. Deep cleanings are certainly amazing, uh, but at the same time, uh, expensive and not might not be as impactful as uh, steady hand washing practices and uh, disinfection of high touch surfaces. Other things that I know we don't have a ton of time, but um, using smaller student groups because that will enable physical distancing. It will make uh, contact tracing easier for middle school and high school if there's in-person learning, maybe the teacher rotates instead of students rotating and creating lots of different combinations of who are you exposed to. Symptom screening, understanding that some children simply have no symptoms, but really being mindful about if anybody in the family has symptoms, then we might want to consider staying home because there's a chance that we could be transmitting disease. And then maximizing adequate ventilation is going to be really hard in some of the schools that have much older infrastructure. But if you're blessed to live in an area like the Bay Area, where being outdoors is possible a lot more of the time, considering moving some of the instruction outdoors could uh, ensure more adequate ventilation whenever possible. Mm -hmm. I think that our schools need more funding and that's another way that we can advocate. I know that in California, some uh, financial decisions were taken to support uh, schools uh, with more funding, but it still is a drop on the bucket compared to the mm -hmm. budget that we invest on other things in this country and uh, what we need to ensure safety in schools. So that's another way that you can advocate. So it's, it's sounding like I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you can correct me. It sounds like you are saying it in weighing the risks, you're saying it is a better idea, especially for kids with disability, with learning disabilities to be in a school setting with the precautions you listed. Would you say that's what you're, where you're leaning or you don't want to say, which is fine? Well, it's, it's not that I don't want to say is that we still have to think about, we have to we have to look at the facts and then we have to think about each individual case. Because okay. if my kid with Down syndrome is 11 or 12 and they're quite healthy, but they live with grandma who has chronic lung disease, diabetes, obesity, and is on dialysis, then that kid might be totally fine going back to school. Their risk might be lower. However, the potential risk of bringing it home to someone who is at much higher risk might need to be weighed. So I think that what I am presenting is information where I am saying, we need to think beyond the risk of COVID. We need to think also about the risk of missing out from in-person instruction. So we need to minimize the risks of in-person instruction, but we have to recognize that there's still risk from COVID probably less to our children, but also to adults, especially our elderly adults in our community. And as we make individual decisions around going back to school, uh, we, we should be weighing all of these risks and benefits. I know for a fact that most districts are gonna be thinking about the option of distance learning for those who feel that their risks are too much even when they move to in-person learning as a, as a whole district. And I yeah. also know that most districts are planning a phased in approach uh, where we don't go from zero to hero. We go from all distance learning to some in-person learning, wait, reassess, 
to more in-person learning, wait, reassess, and so on and so forth. And I think that as we envision the next school year, we need to be prepared for a start and stop kind of thing, especially as we hit our winter flu season, as opposed to imagining a smooth return to in-person learning. I told you I would frustrate you. No, <laughs> I love it. And then I wanted to just <laughs> clarify too, because I feel like, I don't know, there's different opinions and stuff like that for everything, but are you saying that kids are less likely to get it and spread it under the age of 10? So more of the adult to adult interactions are actually more dangerous than like if they were in school or like play dates or can you talk on that? Cause I know that's kind of hard for families. I mean, we're in summer and the temptation is there to like hang out with family, friends, social distancing, but like then play dates. Cause we're like scared that our kids are gonna, that our kids are being affected socially by not seeing people. What are your opinions on that? I'm curious. I think it again, I think it needs to be done thoughtfully, intentionally, yeah. and safely. I think that if uh, um, you were my neighbor, Mercedes, and I knew that you were observing, uh, and you were observing uh, physical distancing, and uh, you and I had similar ideas around what it means to physically and socially distance, and we're equally scared about this, um, and we wanted to arrange play dates between our children, at intervals um, and you and I truly stayed six feet away from each other and wore masks consistently the whole time and then neither of us also went and had similar play dates with mm -hmm. five or six other families then I think it's not only okay but necessary to mm -hmm. create these socialization opportunities but you saw how many bullet points I put in before I, I said that it was okay <laughs> because it's because true. it's about risk reduction yeah. Yeah. What's your thoughts? So I'm going to start throwing some things out there that I don't mean it to be political, but everything's become political. So just know, listener and Dr. Spinazzi, I'm not leaning politically towards any of these things. These are, these are conversations I'm having with my friends totally. who have kids, right. right? So herd mentality, like everyone has to get it, just get it, get it over with. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we do not have any evidence that there is true herd immunity. It appears that antibodies wane pretty quickly. The jury's still out because the outbreak is still early. But mm -hmm. at this point, I do not, we do not see proof of herd immunity. And get it and get it over with means the hospitals are full and you get less quality care because you have one nurse to 10 patients, 10 ICU patients if the hospital is full, you might not get a ventilator. And if you have any other medical problem, you might not be able to get in. So this idea of everybody let's get sick at once. Yeah, but if 20% of everybody who gets sick at once will need to be in the hospital, our hospital is not gonna be able to sustain it. And we do not know who will get sick. There are okay. reports of ICUs being filled with 20 to 40 year olds and various parts of the country. This is not just a disease that affects the elderly. You're more likely to get sick if you're older, but you can get sick if you are young and healthy. And we cannot forget that because it's a numbers game. Because if we have 10 people who get sick and just one of them gets sick enough to be in the hospital, the hospital is not overwhelmed. If we have 10 million kid, people getting sick at the same time and 1 million of them needs to be right. in the hospital, that's too much and we're not going to be able to sustain it. That's why we cannot have this get it and forget it mentality. Yeah. 
And then I have heard, it's always a tricky thing because I don't know for sure even where it came from, except from hearing it from my friends, numerous people about with kids getting it, the kids who have gotten it that are younger and they're fine, like their symptoms are very mild or even maybe not presenting. And then weeks or months later, having some kind of side effect. Have you heard of these stories or am I making this up? Well, there is a syndrome uh, that is a multi-system inflammatory syndrome associated with COVID-19 that has been documented around the country and the world that is taking place weeks after infection or documented infection or exposure and then antibody evidence. And it looks like an overactivation of the immune system, like a reaction to the exposure that's immune-based and is, and is, it appears to be serious. Um, good percentage of the children are present, presenting with cardiovascular shock. It can lead to changes in the heart vessels. Uh, we are learning how to recognize it and treat it. It is still a small percentage of children who are exposed to get it. But this is, again, why we cannot go at this with the let's get it and forget it mentality. We don't, we don't understand this virus yet. Right. There are, we're also starting to realize that there are some adults who continue to have symptoms for months, mm -hmm. debilitating symptoms for months. So we are continuing to learn about this virus. So I, you know, it's so interesting that some people are like, well, when the vaccine is out, I don't want to be the first to get it. We don't know much about it. But then these are the same people who are like, well, if I get it, I guess I'll get it. You know, like, we don't know what this virus does. Yeah. We don't fully understand it. We don't know the long-term consequences of it. We need to continue to be concerned about it and cautious about it. And the aim should be to not get it and not spread it. Hmm. Also, and one last thing I want to say is, you might say, hey, I'm young, I'm healthy, whatever, I'll go and party. But then if you get it, you're going to be contagious two days before you even know you had it. Wow. And you could be exposing people who are not going to fare so well. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we have to remove ourselves from this it's all about me mentality and think mm -hmm. of ourselves as a community because then we cannot have conversation about going back to school if everybody's not taking huge personal responsibility in their role in controlling this pandemic yeah which i think for me just on a personal mm -hmm. aside is the trickiest part is mm -hmm. it's i don't trust you not you personally but like that i don't trust everybody that they're doing their part. Like you use the example of the group school, school project, right? Mm -hmm. It's like not everybody is contributing. And so then, mm -hmm. then it does, even in that way, I find myself in having to check myself and it does turn back to me, right? I'm trying to get, keep that group mentality. But when I'm looking at people who I'm like, well, I can't trust everybody. Mm -hmm. Then I go back to thinking individually again. It's just that it's, you guys, coronavirus is so wild. I mean, the, there's the health aspect and there's just the mental piece of the not knowing and that it's been politicized, the whole thing. It's just, it, I feel like we've given it more power than it deserves because mm -hmm. it's been politicized, right? And because we've made it more than just a medical, not just because it's big, but you know what I mean? More than a medical yes. issue. Right. Yes. And, and that is why I've been so somber and uh, 
I, I, I feel like I sound like a wicked witch talking about all of these serious and scary things. So I'm going to just take a moment to talk about the flip side and say, because this turned out to be a marathon and not a sprint, uh, we have to be very mindful and intentional about how we take care of ourselves through this. Uh, going outdoors, masked and physically distancing is safe. So we have to take time to go outdoors, whether it's in nature or just a walk outside or a bike ride outside. We cannot be cooped up inside all day long for months and months and months on end. It's not good for our mental health. We have to think about how to replace what used to be taken up by social interaction with things that feed our soul and not drain our soul. I found myself spending so much time on, our, on my phone, on my screens, because I was filling that gap with something that wasn't giving anything back to me. So there are things that we can take up. For some, it might be music. For some, it might be art. For some, it might be gardening. For some, it might be reading. But thinking intentionally about how to fill this void with things that are feeding our soul and helping us grow as opposed to just draining our time and making us more anxious. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we have to support each other as a community and check in with each other. Uh, it's, that's the beauty of technology. I cannot imagine this happening 30 years ago and not being able oh to at least God. see my friends and family and at least be able to talk to them and, and, and see their smile and see their facial expression and check in with them so easily the way we, we can now. Um, so we it's you're right heather it's been it's been too much mm -hmm. it's too much for everybody and 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 i feel that for many of us it kind of happened to us happened on us and and we've been kind of startled by it and, and i think that because we're realizing that we have a while more to go before the finish line we have to start thinking about how we emerge from this as well as possible. And that includes being intentional about what we do with our time. Mm -hmm. I love that reminder. Thank you, doctor. Yeah, what, what is the conversations that you're hearing in the medical community in terms of this is a marathon, how, how long is it? Because as a person outside of all of any of that space, biology mm -hmm. and virus and medicine, uh, you hear like it, it morphs, like if it follows other viruses, it'll morph. And after so many years, it's morphed enough that it's just like the common cold. Like it's always, it will always be here. What are, what do you have to say about all that? We don't know. She's well, giving <laughs> listeners, it's a big shoulder. <laughs> I would love to have a crystal ball. I, yeah. I, I am praying that it mutates <laughs> into a common cold, but mm. You know, we've had influenza around for a really long time and influenza continues to be an incredibly uh, serious and, and deadly mm -hmm. disease. So we cannot count on COVID becoming um, uh, a no problem kind of virus. We can pray for it and hope so. My seatbelt is buckled through the end of the next winter season. And uh, I am really hoping that these early promising trials for a vaccine end up uh, producing a, a truly effective vaccine as promptly as possible because uh, seeing where we are in terms of the in January in February we had a chance to squash it and never talk about it again mm. we squandered our chance mm. so wow. now we are coexisting with this virus so mm -hmm. our options are finding a way to create immunity through a vaccine, 
or just having to live with this for a very long time. Okay. Mm. Okay, wow. fine. <laughs> yeah, sorry, lo siento. I told you oh. I would frustrate you. No problemo. <laughs> I am not frustrated by you, Dr. Smeltzi. I'm grateful. No. Yeah. yeah, I'm grateful for your, I'm going to call it a no-nonsense approach, which I think is medical medically appropriate. <laughs> There's no room for nonsense. And there's no you, room for yeah, nonsense. Yeah. And presenting it in like this is what it is, right? The facts. And then everyone gets to decide what they're going to do with that information. Right. And that's part of the process. Yes. With COVID as well. Yes. So okay. Any do you have anything else before we sign off? Any last any other thoughts that you really want the listeners to hear? Be there for each other. Don't lose mm -hmm. hope. Be smart. Look, be cautious of articles that are passed around on the internet. Mm -hmm. Rely on reliable sources of information. I cannot be political, so that is where I will stop. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Are you allowed to say, as you say, I'm not be political? Are there a couple of sources that you would look to that you could say these are, you believe, are reliable sources for information? So I'm here today as Noemi Spinazzi. I don't represent the, the university uh, when I speak to you. However, I am proud to say that UCSF has been putting out a weekly Grand Rounds that is a talk discussing all of the data as it emerges, and it's available on YouTube. Uh, so you can Google UCSF Grand Rounds. The one from this past week was about safe return to school and among other things. And uh, it outlined uh, uh, some of the principles that I discussed today. Um, I think that in general, your, your doctors are having to read and they're having to understand how to face this pandemic and protect their patients and themselves from this pandemic. So rely on your doctors and healthcare professionals. The NIH, the National Institute of Health, I think Dr. Fauci is a hero. And uh, it, it is uh, a little sad that he's being portrayed as anything but that, as someone who's dedicated his life to squashing epidemics and pandemics. Those would be places where I would start. I know that Global Down Syndrome Foundation has put out a document specific to COVID and individuals with Down Syndrome. And there's a, a research effort to continue to study and understand um, how COVID impacts Down Syndrome. So I would also rely on the NDSS, Global Down Syndrome Foundation, NDSE, because whatever they put out needs to be uh, vetted and the people in their leadership are people who are basing their recommendations on science and facts. The American Academy of Pediatrics too, definitely taking in all of the information and weighing the risks of everything and putting out trustworthy information. So I would start, I would start there. Cool. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, those are great resources. I appreciate that. I will, those are some I have not gone to. So I'm grateful for that information. Uh, my older sister says she, she jokes, she gets all her news through memes. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I love it. He's joking, but it's my no, favorite. Totally. I'm like, I want to put it on a t-shirt. I get all my news through memes. I think that that's a lot of people. Okay, we're gonna take we're gonna take a break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. 
Hey, Heather here, and I'm so excited to get to share with you more about Jonas Paul Eyewear. Our sweet Mason Hope has been wearing Jonas Paul Eyewear since she's been in glasses. It has been our go-to in eyewear. They have a mission to help kids feel beautiful and confident in their glasses, and that is exactly how Macy feels every day when she puts her glasses on. They're at-home try-on kits, which are just a dollar, send you a variety of options of frames, and your kid gets to try them on and feel confident and great before ordering. They get to try them on feeling confident and great before they make a decision on what pair of glasses they want to order. And when you're ready to order, prescription glasses start at just $79, including prescription lenses. And right now, they're offering blue light blocking lenses, which are perfect for the extra screen time and online learning that so many of our kiddos are doing. So if you're in need of glasses, head to jonaspauleyewear.com and type in the lucky few 15 for 15% off just for listening. All right, Dr. Spinazzi, we are so, so thankful for you coming on again and Mm -hmm. thankful for being on the front lines here and all the work that you're doing and that you care so deeply for your patients and for for our families and our population, the downstream population. So we are very grateful. Hats off to you, friend. Thank Mm you. It's my pleasure and my honor, and I'm happy to come back anytime. I can only promise honesty and thorough research before I come on. Mm, Perfect. We love that. We love that. And friends, thank you for joining us on this episode and listening in. Please head to theluckyfewpodcast.com with any kind of questions that you have, or you can go to the Lucky Few Pod on Instagram and we can continue the conversation there through direct messages or on any of our posts. And as always, we want to thank our editor Josh Avis and we want to thank our producer Val Schleter and our sponsor for this week's episode and all of you who share the lucky few podcasts with friends and who have listened faithfully and continue to cheer us on it means so much don't forget and be sure to share this episode with all of your friends and family and remember always that you are dear listeners supporting your loved one with down syndrome you are a shouter of birth and a narrative shifter so keep on keeping on hold on to hope we are here with you cheering you on and we will be together next week on lucky two podcasts bye bye thanks for listening to lucky few podcasts remember to review our show on apple podcasts and check us out on all social media at the lucky few pod lastly send us your good news by going to the lucky few and sending us a message via text voicemail or email see you next time